First Thessalonians is where we're at. Um, we're going to jump right into to chapter 2. Let me pray real quick and we'll get into it. Lord, we do ask that you would speak to us from your word. And uh, Lord, you promised to give your Holy Spirit. And one of the things you said that your spirit would do is lead us into all truth. And your word is true. And so Lord, help us to comprehend your word, to understand it. And uh, Lord, as you exhort in the book of James that we would not be hearers only, but that you would make us to be doers of your word. And so we ask this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen, amen. So uh, we're in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, we're, we're going to begin chapter 2 today. If you've been with us, um, 1 Thessalonians, as we've covered that, really introduced us to Paul the Evangelist. Paul is the guy that God used to go out and to preach uh, the gospel. Paul um, going on the missionary trail, being sent out by a church of, in Antioch where he and Barnabas were a part of this church. Uh, they're in modern-day Turkey, and, uh, and the Holy Spirit called them to go out uh, on a series of missions trips. So Paul and Barnabas would go out on the first one. Paul and Silas would go out on the second one. Ultimately, you and I are Christians today because of this, these missionary journeys that Paul went out on. And so we're so grateful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in that way. And what we've seen is that Paul and Silas went out and uh, on this second missionary journey, they ended up uh, ultimately here in this town of, of Thessalonica and they started a little church there, and the church grew. Um, there was some persecution. Paul was chased out of town, but the church remained. And so the occasion and purpose of the writing of this letter is Paul to encourage this young church and really wants to encourage them in their faith and to help them in their doctrine. And it's very instructive for us, so we're uh, grateful for the, the truths that are contained here. And uh, chapter 1, really, uh, Paul is... Really, it's a summary of praise as he begins the, the, the letter to this church, and he's talking to them about <clears throat> just the evidence of their faith, how joyful it is for him to see their faith evidenced. And their, their faith, he cites a few things, their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope, and, and really all of those, you know, causing him to know that they are the elect of God. And not only does Paul focus there on the evidence of the faith of the Thessalonians, but as we're going to see today, he transitions and really what Paul is, is sort of focusing on is the evidence of his own faithfulness. We see it there. We'll just jump in. In context uh, there, chapter 2, verse 1, um, Paul's continuing this, this uh, address to them and he says, For you yourselves know... Uh, speaking to these Thessalonians, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. That phrase, in vain, if you wanted to circle it nearby, you could write, it was not empty, uh, it was not without results, it was not a failure. In other words, Paul's evangelical work was successful, it paid off. And, uh, and now, Paul's not patting himself on the back here. That's not the purpose. He's going somewhere with this. And where Paul is going with this is really he's emphasizing the importance of shepherding. How critical it is. Because the idea is that, listen, the business of making disciples is not limited to leading people to Christ. That's a part of it. But it doesn't end there. The business of making disciples is leading people to Christ and then leading people in Christ. You've come forward, now you need to go forward kind of idea. And so this is what's going on here. And so chapter 1 introduces us to Paul's work as an evangelist, 
But chapter 2 introduces us to Paul's work as a pastor. And let me tell you why this is important. I made a slide just to burn it into and get you there. Because, you know, you come to a message and you hear the, the text being taught. And, uh, and really the thing that is burning on everybody's mind, it should be, when you, when you come to a teaching is, what's this got to do with me, right? Um, and uh, not that we're, in, you know, self-centered in that way, but we do want to know, God, what do you have for me? And what, what is applicable, applicable here for me? So here's why this matters to you today. Number one, the task of making disciples isn't just the work of the pastor. And number two, we see a picture here of how a pastor should operate. So it's both and. Really what we're learning here is this process of shepherding and really what you should expect from your pastors um, and what kind of a church and how should we operate because we see Paul operating in very distinct ways, but really what you should expect of yourself as a shepherd because all of us have this duty and this responsibility to make disciples. It's not just for those in spiritual leadership in, in a church structure, it's for all believers to go and to make disciples. Listen, understand, for every evangelical work, there's an equally vital equipping work. Um, what, does, what good does it do if we preach the gospel, but we're not around for the follow-through? And you need to understand, for Apostle, the Apostle Paul, the follow-through was really keenly important to him. Uh, he said this in 2 Corinthians. He, he cites the all the persecutions that he went through to bring the gospel, to function as an evangelist. He talks about shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonment and going hungry and enduring torture. And certainly he went through all of those things. But then the Apostle Paul says this, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. He says, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern." For all the churches. Now, that word besides is very important. It, what it's communicating there is something that is distinctly separate. In other words, Paul is saying, These were all my sufferings, but in a whole, and they were you know, important that I endured these things for the sake of being an evangelist, but in a whole distinctly separate and more important category is the equipping work of the care for those that I led to Christ. That's the idea. This was a greater burden than anything else. Understand this. Christianity is just like parenting, right? And making disciples is more than just making a baby, right? It's, it's making a baby and then it's being around to raise that baby, right? And, and so it's just like your parenting. You're, you're, you're being a parent. You're being called mom and dad. Isn't just that, you know, biologically speaking, you created a child. Like, oh, there, I gave you life. Good luck. And may the odds ever be in your favor. Like, you know, and letting them go. No, it's the ongoing work of being a parent, raising your kids. So this is what the Apostle Paul's talking about. And this is what he was talking about in 1 Corinthians 4.15. I'll put it on the screen for you. Paul told the Corinthians, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's articulating this heart of, I love you, I care about you, I want to nurture you, I want to cause you to grow. And again, as I said, this is really the burden that we should all have when it comes to shepherding. We all shepherd in some sort of capacity, some way, shape, or form, you are a shepherd. 
You're either a shepherd to your kids or you're a shepherd to those that you're ministering to, those Christians that, you know, maybe, you know, you have kind of a Paul-Timothy relationship where one's the senior, one's the junior, and there's the pouring into. We should all strive to have a Paul in our life that's pouring into us and a Timothy type in our life whom we are pouring into, right? That's kind of health of the church. And so this is critically important. And by the way, this is why when, whenever we do any sort of evangelical work here at the church, whether it's a local evangelical outreach or whether it's a missional, uh, international missions outreach, our focus is, yes, we want to be involved in those things that are leading people to Christ, but we also want to see that there's, the work is anchored in a local church, somebody who's there for the follow-through. I met a brother in in Christ recently. He pastors a church in New Jersey, really tough, rough area of New Jersey. And he was sharing with me how his church got started. And basically, they were putting together evangelistic teams. They were going out uh, really into some rough areas of New Jersey. And they were doing these evangelical outreaches and they saw many coming to Christ. But then they stepped back and they realized, well, we've led them to Christ, but they've got nowhere to fellowship. So he started a church literally in a garage below an apartment building with no heating, which I told him that's like having no air conditioning in Temecula, you know, Um, in a cold place, and they just were there. Why'd they do that? Because they wanted to be around for the follow-through. And so this is what's coming through here. And um, Warren Wiersbe said this. uh, I think it's instructive for us. He said, the church at Thessalonica was born through the faithful preaching of the apostle and his helpers, talking about this evangelical work. And the church then was nurtured through the faithful pastoring that Paul and his friends gave to the infant church, leading them to Christ, leading them in Christ. He said this helped them to stand strong in the midst of persecution. So here now in our text, what we're going to be seeing, we're going to look at three pictures of Paul's ministry um, as, a, as a pastor, as a shepherd, and uh, they're instructive for us. We're going to see Pastor Paul, or well, Pastor Paul, yes, caring for the church as a faithful steward. We're going to see him caring as a loving pastor, and we're going to see him caring as a concerned pastor. So if you're taking notes, write it down. First point of application, Paul was a faithful steward. 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, beginning again in verse 1, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered, uh, before we were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, uh, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, uh, or was it in deceit? But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. I want you to notice, first of all, we're focusing on Paul being a faithful steward. And part of Paul's faithfulness was the manner of his faithfulness. We see it there in verse 2. 
that he talks about how they had suffered before they ever got to, to uh, Thessalonica. And we went through this, we saw this in chapter 1, where Paul and Silas, they went out, and they came, prior to coming to Thessalonica, they came to the area of Philippi, and the Philippians, the people of the, the town of uh, Philippi, some of them became believers, certainly a church was planted there, but uh, a great many others persecuted them. And they endured such persecution at Philippi that they really uh, were, were literally beaten physically. Uh, they were thrown into the inner prison and put into stocks, which is a torture device. And, and this was no picnic, right? And, and here's the deal. If we're honest, we would have to admit that if, if we had endured that, let's say, you know, you're invited to go on a, on a missionary journey with us. We've got several coming up in 2020. And, and let's say you say, I'm going to go. I want to go to the Philippines. Let's go, Pastor Ted. And you go with us to the Philippines. If, if you experienced on that missions trip what Paul and Silas experienced in Philippi, where, where, where they beat you up and where they threw you into jail and tortured you while you were there, the temptation would be to tap out, right? The temptation would be to say, I wasn't expecting that, you know? And, and so it, it, is a, it is a real honest um, reality to, to just understand that when Paul leaves Philippi, literally, he would have been, when they rolled into town in Thessalonica, black and blue, still swollen, still bearing, you know, the wounds that they received, and, uh, and it might have been, you know, hey, I need to go out of town, and people would look at him, and, and I imagine the Thessalonians saying, oh my gosh, you need a doctor, and Paul's response is, no, you need a doctor, you need the great physician, let me preach the gospel to you, right? And, and, and we just go, dude, I don't know if I could do that. I just, I honestly don't know if I could. That's like, that's incredible. But Paul, he demonstrated this faithfulness. I heard a story uh, as I was putting my message together of a guy who was in the army and he had uh, gone to a boot camp at a place, it was, it was on an island um, and it was located in, uh, a, in, the, in a nice area. I can't, I can't remember what state it was in, but it was, in a, it was a nice, you know, uh, sort of lagoon there and, and marina that was near there. And there was a guy that showed up to boot camp with him and he showed up with his water skis and he showed up with a fishing pole. And everybody made fun of him, but to his credit, his recruiter kind of lied to him. And it, the recruiter told him that, oh, this, the boot camp is in this place, it's right near this resort, and people, you, you know, people can go, they go water skiing, and, and they go fishing there, there's all of this stuff that's available for people. What he left out was, it ain't available for you. And so... What he experiences when he shows up to boot camp is they confiscate his water skis, they confiscate his fishing pole, and by the way, they confiscate everything else. They confiscate his toothbrush, they confiscate his comb, they confiscate everything. They basically tell him, send it all home. Send your, right down to his chonies, man. It's like, send it all home. Why? Well, because you're in the army now. Right? You're not going to need your hair because we're going to cut all your hair off. Um, and, and so what happened is that he was recruited to the army. Those were civilian privileges, and he didn't have them. You see, 
The Bible says that God has enlisted you and I as soldiers, right? Here's what Paul told Timothy. He said, you therefore must endure hardship as, here it is, a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Why? That he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And we understand that intellectually. We maybe even embrace that and celebrate that in worship. You know, onward Christian soldiers marching on to war with the cross of Jesus going on before like we've been all about it, right? But it's a whole different kettle of fish when you face hardship, isn't it? The great theologian Mike Tyson said this. He said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And sometimes you get punched in the mouth. Listen, you're going to face trials as a Christian. Here's what Paul, or here's what Peter said. He said, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We will face persecution. I like what John Piper said. He said, more and more I'm persuaded from Scripture and from the history of missions that God's designed for the evangelization of the world and the consummation of His purposes includes the suffering of His ministers and His missionaries. And just in case you were wondering who a minister and a missionary is, take a good long look in the mirror because you are a minister and you're a missionary. Right? Some of you are missionaries at Target. Some of you are missionaries at the Water District. Some of you are missionaries in the construction field or in the hospital or in the fire department or whatever it is. Hey, you are a missionary, right? Uh, John Piper continues. He says, to put it more plainly and specifically, God designs that the suffering of his ministers and missionaries is one essential means in the joyful, triumphant spread of the gospel among all the peoples of the world. Here's the deal. Paul was a faithful steward. He was a faithful steward. I want you to notice there in verse 4, he says, but as we have been approved by God, here it is, to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. He talks about not only being approved by God, but he talks about this entrusting. That's the definition of stewardship, that you've been entrusted with something. Right? And so, it, I'll illustrate it this way. Brenda and I, we, we recently downsized. We, we had a, 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 a bigger house for when all our kids lived at home, and then they all grew up and got married and moved out. We didn't need the big house anymore, and so we just bought a small house. And, uh, and it's the smallest house I've lived in since we first got married. But we went into escrow to buy the house, and part of escrow is you take your own money, and you write it payable to the escrow company, and they deposit it, in their account. But it's not their money. It's my money. And they've been entrusted with it, right? Their job is to use that money for what I tell them to use it for. It's going to go here, it's going to go in trust, and you're going to apply it here, right? They can't just take my money and spend it any way they want. And it's the same way with you and me. This is the idea of stewardship, that, that you are a soldier of Christ and, and your life doesn't belong to you anymore. You belong to Jesus Christ. And so the, the issue is, is that he entrusts you with several things, primarily the gospel, right? There is this trust. He has entrusted you with it, and you have to use it for his purposes. So 
Paul here is a faithful steward. Uh, He was faithful through hardships. And I want you to notice also, he was faithful to the message that God had given to him, right? Verse 3, our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. So Paul was faithful to preach the gospel. And we talk about the gospel, I'm not just talking about the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. That's part of the gospel, that's not the whole gospel. Yes, it's true that you are a sinner by nature and by choice, and that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Bummer, bad news. Good news of the gospel is that God the Father loves you, and He loves you so much, He, did, he has to judge sin. And he has to pour his wrath out upon sin, but he does not want to pour his wrath out upon you. And so what he does is he himself came in the person of Jesus Christ, and he lived uh, the the life that, that only God could live, right? A perfect life, sinless life, and became a sinless substitute, sacrifice for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus gave his life on the cross. And if you, if I, if we believe what God has done, if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if we cry out and say, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. The Bible says if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, hey, Jesus, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe that you died for my sins in my place. And I surrender my life to you. Come in, be my Lord, be my Savior. Take over and, and help make me a new creation. Help me to walk with you and to know you. Yes, that's the gospel. That's only part of the gospel. See, because the, also, the, doctor, the, the, the gospel also includes doctrine and it includes duty, things that, that we need to, to live out. Yes, I'm saved. Yes, I'm going to heaven. Yes, I have the hope of eternal life. But the gospel also includes how do I live in between after I'm a new creation? How do I live out and work out my faith? And so Paul was faithful to that message. He told Timothy this. He says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, another church that he planted, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Hey, faithfulness to the gospel. They teach no other doctrine. Nor are they to give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, big $10 Christian word, which simply means to be built up in righteousness, godly edification, which is in faith. Now, he says, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. And Paul is saying, listen, our exhortation, it didn't come to you with error or uncleanness or was it in deceit? Some of the ways that Paul is telling Timothy uh, uh, that some are, are preaching a message that's contrary to the doctor and they need to stop that. Paul is saying that wasn't us. And, and he's, he's talking about they've been approved by God and entrusted with a message. For years, I I taught uh, homiletics at the Bible college. It's the science and art of biblical preaching. 
And so I would teach students how to put together a message and how to deliver the message. And I would tell them, listen, the issue of putting together a message, you got to understand when it all boils down, it comes down to one simple truth, and that is that you are a mailman. That's it. Your job is not to write or rewrite the letter. Your job is simply to deliver the letter very clearly, very precisely. And so that's the thing. Paul is saying, look, I didn't change it. I was faithful to deliver God's mail, to say what he wanted me to say. And listen, understand, Christian, the same is true with you. Same is true with you. As a Christian, God has entrusted his gospel to you. You are a steward of it. You don't own it, so to speak. Your job is to be faithful to deliver that gospel. This lies at the heart of stewardship. Now, I want you to see there in verse 3, again, when Paul preached the gospel, he said that it wasn't in error, right? He said the exhortation did not come in from error or from uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. And so, obviously, he stayed true to the gospel. That's the idea of it wasn't in error. I didn't, I didn't pervert it. I didn't manipulate it. I stayed true to what God wanted to say. But he also says, I didn't, I didn't deliver it in uncleanness or in deceit. That word uncleanness, the idea of that is that it didn't come by an, by an unpure motive. Paul wasn't preaching the gospel to make a name for himself. He wasn't preaching the gospel to get rich. He didn't have some sort of ulterior motive for the work that he was doing. He was being accused of that by some, but that wasn't what he was doing. Also, he said, it didn't come to you in deceit. And that word's interesting. It means literally to bait a hook. Like, like I'm just going to tell you whatever you need to hear so I can catch you, right? Uh, You know, so so the idea is, oh, you know... uh, Come to Jesus, your life will be like a a country western song played backwards. You know, you'll get your truck back and your car back and your wife back and your dog back. Everything will be, you know, puppies and butterflies. It'll all be great. Just say the fire insurance prayer and then you can go live any way you want. That would be baiting a hook. That's not the truth of the gospel, right? And so he said it didn't come to you in deceit. Now, there's an application for us there today because we live in an age when the Bible that you hold in your hands today is increasingly in conflict with the things that the world holds very dear. And we're seeing it on an increasing scale. The Bible's view of sexuality, the Bible's view of family structure, the Bible's view of what it is to live righteously, the Bible's view of self-denial. All of these things are in a head-on collision with the message that the world preaches, right? And they're rejected by many. Many people say, oh, it's cute that you believe in a 2,000-year-old ancient document, but you don't live in the real world. And, and that those, you know, you've got your truth, I've got my truth, right? Truth, by definition, by the way, can only be one thing. It, it's not your truth, my truth, right? Oh, your truth is 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's not my truth. Well, one of us is wrong, right? And so, so the issue is, is that, There is a temptation currently by, you know, so-called pastors and Bible scholars. I say that contemptuously with air quotes. But they would say, you know what? We live in an enlightened age, and we're so much more enlightened than they were 2,000 years ago. And I know that it says that, and maybe that was true for then, but it's not true for now. 
Bible scholars who think they know better than God, right? The one who wrote it, like, oh, he didn't know. The one who knows the end from the beginning was not enlightened like you are, you know? And that this is the attitude. So instead of delivering God's mail, we live in a day and age when people are reinterpreting Scripture in such a way that it'll be palatable for the world, right? Because what are they afraid of? They're afraid, oh, man, this is really flying in the face of what the world embraces, and so if I preach the gospel, people are just going to reject it, so I'll pervert the gospel. Now, they don't say it like that, but that's what they're doing. And so you see people go on Oprah or on Larry King, they ask them some tough questions, which could simply be answered by saying, well, look, here's what the Bible teaches, but instead of doing that, they get answers like, well, it's not for me to say. Or, well, it's not God's best, right? And they take the chicken exit. God's a God of love. God's a God of inclusion. Yes, he is a God of love and a God of inclusion, but he's also a righteous judge. And he has, to, he has a standard that he has to judge by. And it's not because God's up in heaven, some cosmic killjoy. It's because he, he knows the way of righteousness, And he knows what's going to hurt you, and he knows what's going to help you. And we live in a world that basically says, we want all the cotton candy, that's all we want to eat, and God's like, they'll kill you. That's not good for you. I, I know what's best for you. So we need to understand this, that at the end of the day, we have to be faithful. And, and we're faithful as Paul in the manner of our faithfulness, right? Even if we are enduring hardship or whatever it is, we have to... There, or as well in our faithfulness, be faithful to the message that God's given to us. I got I to gotta deliver his mail. And I want you to thirdly notice in Paul's faithfulness, the motive of his faithfulness. He says it there in verse 4. We've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our heart. His motive is at the end of the day, I've got to please God. I have to give an account to God. My motive is what pleases God. Paul said this to Timothy, the apostle. He said, for the time will come, Paul the apostle to Timothy, his disciple, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves. Who's the they themselves? He's talking about the people of the future. They will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth, and they'll be turned aside to fables. Boy, that day has come in spades, has it not? I mean, it is here. And there is, there is just the absolute, you know, the shopping around for, hey, tell me what I want to hear. And if you look long enough and hard enough, you'll find somebody who is preaching the message that is tailor-made for the, the, the little G God that you want to be. We have people, from time to time, they'll come in for counseling. And they'll, they'll say, oh, here's my situation. And we will say, well, here's what the Bible says. And they'll say, well, I don't like that. <laughs> well, okay, but I don't have anything else to tell you. This is what the Bible says. I'm just telling you that this is, you know, and, and please hear God's heart on this. And no, thank you. And they'll go shopping for another pastor who will tell them what they want to hear and affirm how it is they want to live. I'm sorry, that's not love right? And so that's the issue that we have to understand. When we look at Paul's faithfulness, he's faithful in all of these different areas. And Paul, we see him 
practicing what he preaches. You read it there in, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, and there's this beautiful scene. Paul is on his way to, ultimately, to Jerusalem. Ultimately, he's going to go to Rome, and, and eventually he's going to be killed for his faith. He knows this. The Holy Spirit has revealed this to him. So on his way, he stops in Ephesus, place where he's planted a church, calls the Ephesian elders to himself, and he's given to them basically a farewell message. This is the last time he tells them, I'm going to see you. There's tears, and there's mourning, and there's this sorrowful goodbye. But listen to one of the things he makes a point of telling them, Acts chapter 20, verse 27. He tells them, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Guys, I told you straight. Because I love you. I told you exactly what God's word says. Just hit the pause button right there. Just a, a question of reflection. What are you doing with the gospel? You know, what, what's faithfulness look like in your life with the counsel that you give? How you're shepherding other people? Because like all stewards, we're going to give an account one day to God. My escrow company had to give an account of everything they did with what I had entrusted to them. Right? And you will give an account to God. So Paul's this faithful man, faithful in the manner of his faithfulness, through hardship, through trial, faithful in the message of his faithfulness, to deliver God's mail, faithful in the motive of his faithfulness. I want to live to please God, not please man. And finally, would you notice, regarding his faithfulness, the method of Paul's faithfulness, he says it there in verses 5 through 7, he says, for neither at any time did we use flattering words, As you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, uh, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. First, Paul concentrates on what his method wasn't, and then he says what his method was. First of all, he says, look, my method, it wasn't to use flattering words. I didn't come in trying to butter you up. Oh, you look great. If you lost weight, oh, you're awesome. And I'm just going to flatter you, tell you whatever you want to hear. He says, also, my method wasn't for personal gain. I wasn't looking to get rich off the gospel. I didn't come to make merchandise of you. God wants to heal you, but he ain't going to do it for free. You know, kind of, he's like, that's not what he did. Also, he says, it wasn't for glory. It wasn't for, you know, self-aggrandizement. I I didn't come to you so you would say, oh, Paul, he's this great guy. Look, isn't he wonderful? I didn't come to make a name for myself. Then he says what his method was. He says, it was a method of gentleness. He said, we were gentle among you. And he uses this illustration, like a nursing mother. And so... This brings us to the second aspect, really, of his ministry. His first, first point is that he was a faithful steward. But secondly, Paul was a loving pastor. He was a loving pastor. He says there in verse 7, We were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Verse 8, So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives Because you had become dear to us. Such a beautiful thing. He says, look, we were gentle like a nursing mother. The word is trophos in the Greek, and it's a a feminine noun. 
And it's a picture of a nurse who sustains someone by nourishing them and offering them tender care. And it's coupled with a verb, thalpo, which is to cherish, to nourish, to foster, to comfort, to nurture, to keep warm. it's, It's all of these things. And I want you to see the picture. It's the epitome of tender love and sacrifice, a nursing mom right? And there's action to it that involves desire and deliberate investment. And then he uses this phrase, her own children, just in verse 7, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. That phrase, her own children, indicates belonging and inclusion. Are you getting the picture of shepherding? It's, it's a, I cherish you. I love you. You belong. And I'm going to nourish, I'm going to care for you. This is a beautiful picture. And Paul says, we were well pleased (coughs) to impart not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Really, when you think about it, (coughs) the picture of a nursing mom fits perfectly, right? Because you think about a mom nursing her child, and what is she doing? She's literally imparting her own life to that child. Now, admittedly, um, my experience of nursing is uh, vicariously through my wife, right? Um, actually, I'll tell you a funny story. My, my wife, we, 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 you know, I, I felt for her, because, you know, you ladies know, when you're nursing a child... Uh, it, it's like, you know, you're the one that gets up. You're the one that, you know, oh my gosh, this is killing me, you know, kind of thing. Um, so for, for us, when, when our first child was born, and I did this for all three of our kids, but, you know, when the baby would wake up, I would get up, and I would get the baby, I would bring the baby to Brenda, um, and she would nurse uh, the baby, and then I, after she was done, I would, you know, change the baby's diaper, and I'd put the baby back in bed. That was the agreement. And so one night, Megan wakes up and, uh, you know, Brent, and just crying, 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 crying. And I'm sleeping like I could, a dump truck could have driven through our house, you know. And I'd have slept through it. And so Brenda's hitting me, you know. <laughs> baby, Ted, get the baby. Well, so I get up and I get the baby, right? And I come over and I walk over to her and she looks at me. She goes, what are you doing? Well, here's what happened. I slept through it. I never got up. She got up, got the baby, nursed the baby, changed the baby's diaper, put the baby back in the crib because she was sick of getting me to wake up. When I woke up, I thought I was waking up in a timely manner. And what I had grabbed was not the baby. I grabbed a pillow and I walked back to her holding a pillow. She's like, you idiot, go back to bed, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, and she's still married to me. But, um, no, but a nursing mom. I have this quote from an actual nursing mother who can relate, okay? She says this, a gal named Elizabeth Trotter. She says, we have this idea of a mother with her nursing baby that's all sweetness and light, but it's not. It's really hard work. You have to feed yourself well so you can feed your baby. You ladies understand that, right? You eat some foods that don't agree with the baby. So, you know, I love this, but 
the baby doesn't, so I can't eat this, right? That kind of thing. She says, you have to get up at all hours of the night to care for a crying child, and you have to try not to be cranky about all that lost sleep. Sometimes you can't figure out for the life of you how to make this child stop crying, but somehow you have to stay calm while you do it. And on top of that, you're basically tethered to your child because you don't know when they're going to need you again. And some of you ladies are like, I'm there now. God help me, right? But she says, you sacrifice everything for this child. Why? Because you love them so tenderly and so fiercely. And so it's this beautiful picture, right, that Paul gives of you're going to shepherd somebody. It has to be like a nursing mom. Now, it's been said when we talk about ministering to people, shepherding people, when we talk about the church, it's been said of the church, the church would be a great place if it wasn't for all the people right? And, and, and why is that, you know, such a funny saying? Because sometimes the people can be a, a real drain on, on you, right? And I'm not just talking about pastors ministering to sheep. I'm, again, we're all in this together. We all shepherd somebody. We all minister to people. Parents, let's come to Jesus' honest moment time. There's times you want to kill your kids, right? And so there's times when it's just overwhelming, I've used this illustration so many times, but it's perfect. Where Jesus, as he's getting ready, he's getting ready to split. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to go back to heaven. He's trying to get his disciples up to speed. Sends them out two by two. Hey, guys, go out into all the areas where I'm about to go. Go preach the gospel. And they go out in teams, the two by two. Man, they're out. And they come back, and two things are going on. Number one, they are pumped. They're just ecstatic, as only you can be when God has worked through you and you've done things to where, you know, our Thanksgiving outreach, and we hear of 100 families being ministered to and seeing some of those families in tears and all, and you just, it, I'm thrilled, thank you, Jesus, I want to do this for the rest of my life, it's amazing. But the second thing they are is they're tired, because serving the Lord takes, takes it out of your tank. So they come back ecstatic and exhausted all at the same time, And so Jesus says to them, you know, as they come back, they're still ministering, people pressing in, just sucking them dry, and they are like, Jesus says, okay, get in the boat, I'm going to give you a break. We're going to go away on a retreat. And they're like, yippity-yah, that's great. And they get in the boat, and they go to the other side, and what happens? It's a lake, they go from one shore to the other, and everybody runs around to the shore to the other side, all the people they were getting away from, and there they are, Dr. Leo Marvin, like they're there. We're so glad you're back. And I, and I put myself in the disciples' shoes. They're like, you again? We just got rid of you. But Jesus had compassion on them, right? Because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. So there they go, a whole other day, ministering, pouring in. And at this point, the disciples, man, they're like, Look, you know, I'm looking at their watch the whole time. You know, Flintstones, little sundial kind of thing. They're like, hey, come on. Like, these, somebody's got to tell these people to go, look, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Like, get out of here, you know. They're exhausted, so they couch it in spiritual terms. Now, I'm reading into it, but I think that, like, maybe there was some, some selfish motivation there. They're like, oh, Lord, they don't have anything to eat, and we don't have anything food to give. Send them away so that they go. And what does Jesus say to them? You feed them. You feed them. Nursing mom, you feed them. Hey, ministry would be great if it wasn't for all the people. Yeah, ministry is people. It is people. 
So there's three aspects of Paul's ministry. He was that faithful steward. He was the loving pastor like a nursing mom. And very quickly, finally, I want you to see Paul was a concerned pastor. Look at verses 9 through 12. He says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God, and you are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Pay attention to the next two verses. He says, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, here it is, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Hey, we were faithful, we nurtured you like a nursing mom, and we loved you like an attentive father. This is the idea. And he uses three words here in verse 11 that I want to call your attention to. He says, we exhorted you, we comforted you, and we charged you. That word exhorted, it literally means to call to one side. That word comforted, it means to address by way of admonition, by way of incentive, or to calm and console. It's a mixture of all of those things. I'll come right back to that. And then he uses the word charged, which means to bear witness. When I was a kid growing up, I had an attentive father. And the only thing worse in my house than speaking back to my mom was speaking back to my mom and having my dad hear it, right? Your life was over as you knew it. My dad, you know, calling me to himself, addressing by way of admonition and incentive. You can fill in the dots. Admonition and incentive, right? Uh, The Board board of Education to the Seat of Knowledge kind of thing, right? Um, And then he would stick around to calm and console me after, after, you know, receiving the punishment and the correction. He would would call me. He would console me. He would instruct me. See, my dad used to tell me all the time, Teddy, you don't belong to me. You belong to God. And God has entrusted you to me. And I have to give an account of how I've raised you. Stewardship, he understood it. A loving father, one who's there for the follow-through. So critically important. This is your role as a shepherd, these three areas, just as Paul did it. This is what we're called. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is what we're called to do. This is my role. This is what you should expect of your pastors here. Faithful stewards, nursing moms, attentive, loving father. This is the the picture. This is the idea. Paul said this to the Hebrews. He said, obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls, and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. What he's saying is this. Look, the best thing that you can do, the best thing for your benefit, is that you would obey those who have been placed in spiritual authority over you. Not abusively, I've just showed you who you're supposed to obey, how they're supposed to be functioning. Good, faithful stewards. Lovingly attentive like a nursing mom. Lovingly, authoritatively involved like a father. 
right? This is the attitude, this is the idea. And I'll come right back to that verse as we go through, in conclusion now, our four questions. These are questions that we'll put up here. They'll be up at the end of the service as well. Um, But these are questions I'd ask you to write down. I want you to take a walk with them this week prayerfully. Question number one, are you a faithful steward of the gospel? And a a sub-question for that, as you consider that question, what grade would you give yourself? Second question, are you loving in your care for others? And again, the corollary question is, what what specific way are you nourishing those who have been entrusted to your care, like that, that nursing mom? Third question, what is your area of oversight responsibility? Everybody is in authority and everybody is under authority, right? And so you're in authority in some way. You are shepherding as a Paul to a Timothy in some way, shape, or form. Corollary question, are you an active overseer or are you you distracted and abdicating your duty? Take a walk with that. Last question, how well do you respond to spiritual authority? That takes us back to that scripture in Hebrews 13, 17. How well do you respond to spiritual authority when you're corrected? Is your attitude, well, I was looking for a church when I came to this one? Or is your attitude, hey, these are guys that are lovingly attentive and they're telling me the truth, they're telling me the gospel, and they're doing it for my, for my well-being. 